Podcast. Unmodernity, part four. So, in hindsight, catching up here, I most certainly did have a religion. And when I thought I had none, I had one. A religion is defined by your actions, not your words. Although I thought I was a member of something called no religion, I was actually a secular humanist. But this is not surprising because the entire school system was geared toward the religion of humanism and actively steered pretty much every American child toward it, especially through the 80s and 90s when I was alive, when I was in school. What's strange is that we banned God from public schools because it, it, it smelled of religion. It didn't pass the sniff test. Of course, you can't talk about God. But we brought in humanism, which is a religion. The re this religion is one that pretends it isn't a religion. And the Supreme Court even named it as a religion in 1961, which is just stating the obvious. The humanist founders and architects and believers, they treat it as a religion. It is one. Um, it's just one that's focused on the self. So there were even humanist churches that sprang up and then withered away, of course, because who wants to go to a church that's um, humanist? It, it doesn't make any sense. You don't need one if you worship yourself. So few object to this humanism being taught in schools because we pretend it's not a religion. But it even has a manifesto and its 15 principles like commandments. And if you don't see them as like commandments, they are fairly opposed to the exact commandments of the Old Testament. Here's the first one, just, just for fun. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Wow, that, that's a huge statement. It's, in fact, um, one of the biggest statements you can say about your worldview. Uh, this is literally the direct inversion of the three major world religions of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. So once again, the first principle is religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. So if you start with this premise, your worldview flips completely to a pre-Christian, pre-Hebrew mindset. I spent many hours yammering about this in the series titled About Uranus, very mature title. Uh, if you remove God as the first cause of the universe, who created the universe out of nothing or ex nihilo, ex nihilo, then you have a lot of explaining to do. In fact, if you start with the first point of the humanist manifesto and its principles, you are already in the pagan world of Zeus. You're just using different terms for it. The idea of a creator God never came up in public school. In a subtle way, the tenets of humanism are stamped on every American child. And unsurprisingly, I learned much later after soaking in the bath of this humanist water for some 30 years, that one of the signers of this Declaration of Independence from religion was, of course, I already talked about John Dewey, um, and that's the architect of modern public schools, as I talked about in the last episode. And like Sigmund Freud, who was the father of psychology, Dewey hated religion. So did Freud. So in case you're wondering why these things that have sprung up around us have uh, very anti-Christian views, it's because the founders hated religion. So both of these founders saw their purpose as replacing religion with something else. So this is another quote from the book Atheism for Dummies, which is just an intro to um, atheism, of course. And Dewey is a, described as a kind of hero for doing a bait and switch on religion in the schools. Here's the quote. 
Few people can claim a greater influence on American culture than the philosopher John Dewey. In the course of a long career, Dewey practically reinvented the American system of education from the bottom up. Dewey was also a key figure in the birth of modern humanism. But this approach was controversial, even among humanists, partly because he wanted to keep using the word God even though he didn't believe such a being existed. Think of how profound this is. The founder of public schools, or the architect of our curriculums, wanted us to keep using the word God even though he didn't believe such a being existed. Why would he want that? Why would he want that? Because he wanted to water it down and water it down and water it down until you didn't even know that it, it didn't mean anything. It just didn't mean anything at all. So today we are living in a period of time where everyone is scratching their head and wondering why our nation and world is slipping into disarray. Why is chaos coming back? The fragility of nations and institutions is being felt across domains. Everywhere you go, everyone you talk to is talking about this sliding. They can feel it. They're not prophets. They're not out there uh, whipping themselves or living in the desert or eating locusts. Um, it's people who go to work every day and have kids, and, and they, they can feel it. It's just this, the spirit of the time, um, which if you read the book of Judges or uh, anything in the Old Testament, you know exactly what this time is. Uh, once you get out of this tub of water that you've been soaking in and you look at the water, it's really no longer confusing to see what has happened and is happening. The water is filthy. A billion people are soaking in that tub and not realizing how soggy they've become. They can't understand why they feel like dirty dishwater and they wonder how they can be in a tub and yet not feel clean. And we don't feel clean because we are living a lie. So thus, we have these strange rights that occupy so much of our modern life. And I use rights as R-I-T-E, like rituals. And you can see them in sports, in entertainment, in health, fitness, and technology. Uh, there's a book by Tara Isabella called Strange Rights, which is where I took the term from. And it's about this subject. Um, Americans are... She, quote, she says, embracing a kaleidoscopic panoply of spiritual traditions, rituals, and subcultures from astrology and witchcraft, witchcraft to soul cycle and the alt-right. So there's all these buzzwords of things that come and go, um, soul cycle, uh, alt-right. All of these things are just kind of um, buzzwords for this chaos that's coming up, including all the astrology stuff that's resurging and uh, why is all this happening? Why? How, what, how can we explain this? It's very easy. It's all a substitute for God. All of it. For me, it was pursuit of experiences, um, alcohol, woodworking, triathlons, sports, skydiving, military service, my career, you name it. I probably tried it. Uh, a quote from Joshua Mitchell sums up the state of this um, constant seeking of meaning through the self. Uh, Homo sapiens is devolving into selfie man. And it is therefore to the manner of his falling into illness that we must attend and to his experience of illness that we must appeal. I cannot prove it, but I suspect this is the path selfie man must take to recover an understanding of human nature. The prodigal son returns home only after he realizes the husks of corn on which he has been feasting nourish him not. 
this is the story of our times. It's one of spiritual crisis. It's one that the movie Fight Club talked about a lot, that our, our age is one of spiritual crisis. We don't have a great war. We have a great crisis of what do we believe in? Because not only has the word God become taboo, but most people who say the word don't really believe in it. Can I be that bold to say that people, a lot of people who say it don't really believe in it? Well, we, you just need to merely look at where people spend their time. Drive by any gym or baseball field on a Sunday morning and, and then compare those parking lots to how empty the church parking lots are. So while they're watching their kid play basketball or baseball or whatever sport, hockey, they may be sitting in the stands wearing pajama shirts that say faith or Jesus and coffee, but then they turn on Netflix when they get home and they do nothing on Sunday on the Lord's Day for God. And it's a violation of the third commandment. I mean, if you really are going to stick to what it means to believe in Jesus and what does he tell us to do repeatedly? Keep his commandments. He did not say go to a hockey rink all day on Sunday. He did not say binge watch Cobra Kai on Sunday morning. Um, so there's this complete uh, merging of two things that just don't fit together. They re they're basically rejecting God, but saying, I, I, God is first in my life. Well, it's not. If you're sitting, if you're watching TV instead of attending church, or if you are at a softball field or baseball field, you've chosen. You've made your choice. So how can people be so bold as to say they really are following, you know, the Christian way um, and really not do it at all? How does, how do they do that? Well, it's very easy. It's because... We don't really believe in the idea of anything sacred. You know, we've been programmed. And as I said, uh, when nothing is sacred, everything is sacred. So that's the, that's the rule here. And everything is sacred, nothing is sacred. And this is why we can believe that laying on a couch and thinking about God for a split second is as good as going to church and spending an hour with God and receiving the Eucharist, which... Sitting on your couch versus receiving the Eucharist could not be more opposite of anything that I can think of in the world. Um, but that is the great flattening that has occurred. The bait and switch that occurred is exactly as Dewey planned. Like, you know, we say God, but we kind of smirk or wink inside. We're like, yeah, yeah, okay, God. Yeah, you're there for when I have a funeral or something and I'll need you. But right now I got to finish this uh, series on Netflix. The pioneers of America who lacked internal combustion engines and lacked Netflix and youth sports somehow found the energy to saddle up and walk to church. The test of our time, the test that appears to have been failed, is that we have incredible ease in getting to church, but we choose not to. The number one reason people hate Christianity today is because of hypocritical Christians. And so do I. It is a scandal. It is a scandal to see a believer who speaks the language of devotion and piety, but whose actions suggest otherwise. That is the whole plan of why, I'm sorry, John Dewey, that is, it's very plain to see why you wanted God to be mentioned in school, but not to be actually followed. That was the point. It was to water it down and make it meaningless. And then what you see is the people who still have it on their lips as utterly false hypocrites. And then that makes you just want to throw the whole thing out. 
And this is why people roll their eyes at Catholics that sin on Saturday night and go to confession on Sunday morning. I'm just kidding. No one goes to confession on Sunday morning. Hardly anyone goes to confession anymore. Um, that was a joke, by the way. Um, we're supposed to be, but the reality is people are not. But uh, what I'm talking about is that the hypocrites, that you cannot even really be following it and say you're, you're a devout Catholic. So now there's a whole discussion about that of who should be receiving the Eucharist, but that's for other episodes and other discussions. Uh, you're not supposed to be taking the Eucharist if you haven't gone to confession, if you haven't done an examination of conscience. That's a whole about an eight or ten part series we could do at some point. But what drives people away is scandal and hypocrisy. We all hate a hypocrite. And so did Jesus. That's the thing you have to remember. You cannot let the hypocrites drive you out of your of faith. Because essentially we all are to, to one degree or another. We all are. There's no question about it. But you cannot let that make you lose your focus toward it. The problem is that we are all hypocrites, no matter how holy, perceived, or otherwise. And the hypocrites once drove me away. And this is kind of why anyone who doesn't like religion would want people talking about God when they're not really living it out, because it makes it ridiculous. But I won't let the hypocrites drive me out again. Um, why? Because I'm one of them. And as I frequently like to quote, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum of saints. The church and its doctrine and sacraments and liturgy provide the path to remembering this. If I'm confused about this, then I'm falling into righteousness or despair. Um, you could call it righteousness presumption. That's um, despair, meaning I'm worthless, I'm no good, I can't be saved. That begins to seep into my thoughts and action. And that is precisely when I've fallen into this trap where God is on my lips, but not in my heart. There's a lot of country songs that sort of have this going on all the time. This was the goal. I'm sorry, I really, sorry to beat up on John Dewey because um, obviously he didn't do all bad things in his life, but his, his philosophy led to very bad things. I'm sorry. Um, but the goal was to keep God in our mouth, but not in our heart. And once you awaken to this fact, you can get out of that soggy bathtub and pull the plug on it and let the dirt drain away. And then you can take action and get God out of storage once and for all. You can take the bedsheet off the giant grand piano that's sitting in your head and say, wow, look at this thing. I didn't know this was here, even though you did. You just were ignoring it. So the great achievement of the humanist in the 20th century was the flattening of the sacred. And I know it goes back further than that. It's not just that era. It goes way back to um, the 1500s or maybe even earlier if you really start digging. Um, so they managed to make all the things the same, to make all things sacred and therefore make nothing sacred. That's the outcome. That's Unitarianism in a nutshell which places all religion into the same psychological basket. Um, there's nothing set apart, nothing sacred, yet we still have the word God on our lips, just as, as uh, the humanists wanted, or some of them wanted, and they got it that way too. Uh, and then you live in this no man's land. It's like the wasteland of T.S. Eliot, because you're saying the word God, but you're living like a modernist. You speak as if you have ultimate meaning, but then you don't live it out. 
hence the emptiness of our modern age. <clears throat> you must make your own meaning then, and this manifests out in a thousand ways, and all of them are dead ends. What is lost with God is ultimate meaning, and the vacuum is felt. It's the void, the abyss. It's this onslaught of meaninglessness that drives the pursuit of self-destruction and self-salvation. In fact, self-destruction is the easy one to fix because you can just turn around. Self-salvation is one where you think you fixed it and you didn't. It takes a long time to see that. Because if we cannot find meaning, we must either escape the problem or solve the problem. So you can go toward nihilism, like the French philosophers, or you can go toward the will to power, like the German philosophers. And then there's a third option, compliments of Karl Marx, is that you get to become the savior of the world. And in three, all three of these outcomes, you can still say the word God, and the word can mean absolutely nothing to you while you say it. And that's the state we're in today. God is everywhere in our speech and nowhere in our actions. By design, most of us live out lives that have nothing to do with Christ, only when we come close to the edge of a cliff and look down, that's when we look up. So with God put into storage, we will go dust the idea off when we feel nostalgic or lost. We lost someone we love, uh, something bad happened, and now we need a transaction. You know, some, someone's in the hospital, that's when we need God. We're in a period of adjustment. That's when we go looking for him, between our pursuits of ourselves. Then we will look to God. But the moments a new distraction or experience or relationship or a job arrives, God goes right back into storage. We put the bedsheet back on the grand piano. We only want God when we recognize the need for a savior, that we do need a savior. But then we find something else that substitutes. It's just as good. We only want Jesus on the cross when we need forgiveness. You know, the more I thought about it, Christ is treated like a 401k fund where we look at the cross like a number of dollars that will save us in our old age after we are done sinning. The penitent thief on the cross, or the good thief, who is promised entrance to paradise, that's our secret wish for ourselves. It's the get-out-of-jail-free card on our deathbed, and the card that allows us to live however we want today, so that we can ignore everything Christ said before that moment on the cross. Now, most interesting, however, is that I hear many self-professed Christians say, that doesn't sit well with me regarding the penitent thief's late change of heart in Luke chapter 22. It's just like when someone says, uh, someone on death row right before the injection uh, found Jesus and he went to heaven. That, you'll hear people say, that doesn't sit well with me. After what that person did, that doesn't sit well with me. Now, in reality, those of us with the name of God on our lips but whose actions lack any follow-through, we should be begging and hoping that the salvation of the good thief of St. Dismas is a possibility for us too. Because that person on death row who finds Jesus, that's us. We should be so lucky that we can have that same possibility because we rack and stack up mortal sin after mortal sin and we ignore the sacrament of confession and at the same time, cast our eyes down at others for their sins. We should be lucky if the same mercy is shown for our own hypocrisy that we ignore. And I include myself in that as much as anyone else in the entire world. Maybe more so.
any encroachment of spiritual religion, or I'm sorry, of traditional religion into the public sphere, that bothered me. I was wary of any form of Christianity creeping back into my life, in my mind. I thought, you know, Christians, they just can't leave anything alone. They just have to shove it down our throats at every opportunity. And I remember listening to the Grateful Dead song, Truckin', where Jerry Garcia sings about getting busted on Bourbon Street, ratted out by nosy do-gooders who called the police. And the line in the song is, they just can't let you be. They just can't leave you alone. Um, he's just saying, we just wanted to party. Can't we just be left alone? Now the irony is how the flip has happened, where modernism is shoved down our throats. This is, in my, in my lifetime, I would say, people would say they didn't want religion shoved down their throats. And now the flip has happened where people are saying, I don't want this modernist stuff shoved down my throat. <laughs> so this has happened even over 30 years that I've seen it happen. The old religion of hearing a one hour Sunday message, plus maybe an hour on Wednesday night where kids would go to their uh, religious religion class. It just stood no chance against the full blast 40 hours a week of public schools preaching mainline humanism. So we have been indoctrinated without a doubt. We have been indoctrinated to modernism, to the tenets of humanism and whatever other isms are out there that they make us turn us into confused uh, legion sort of beings. We are many, we are confused. So if you want to be free, how do you do that? You have to take the first step in opposition of the current. You have to turn and swim upstream. This is a great challenge, and it's actually the most exciting thing you can discover. The new rebel today is not the person that embraces sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's the person who embraces chastity, temperance, and silence. The new rebel is the one who unmoderns himself. I suspect as the result of a century of this humanist education comes to a close, the next Abraham will be called out of California, just as he was out of Haran. He couldn't live there because Haran was pagan. It was bad. There was many bad things happening there. The next person will be called out of California in the same way, or any state in America, really. The next St. Anthony of Egypt will find his way to the desert. He will leave the corrupt world he sees and a new saint benedict will find his way to a cave and we will start to rediscover all that has been lost and all the lies that we've been told now this is the way it happens it always has happened this way the world tries to crush god to remove him from all public spaces to deny that sin is even a thing and god seems to go away he seems to go away and then he returns. Jesus also went to the desert. He also went to a tomb, but he returned. He is returned now. He is alive as ever, and he will once again be the healer that we're looking for.